Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. So I think right up top, we have to update people on something we talked about a few weeks ago. It was a big opioid trial. Yeah, did want to. This was the INSYS case, which we talked um, with uh, Chris Villani about a couple weeks ago. Yep. Uh, this was the, uh, it was basically like a racketeering case. So these these uh, drug executives for the, this company, Insys, were accused of basically bribing doctors to overprescribe their opioid. Um, and they were found guilty uh, in Boston federal court uh, last week, just as we were actually recording last week's show. That's why we didn't get to it. But there's five executives uh, convicted of conspiracy charges. And this is a pretty big deal because this is the first time we've had executives from an opioid company yeah. um, get in trouble for their practices. Yeah, yeah, there's been doctors and you know lower level people, but executives yeah. from the drug makers. It's true. Uh, yeah, and this one, it, as you may or may not remember, this one had a lot of color. First of all, it was a 10-week trial and then two yeah. more weeks of deliberations, so uh, the court had its hands full with that. This was the the one with the, uh, the internal company video with someone dressed up as a bottle of fentanyl or something or whatever right. or whatever opioid they were descri- right. that, that they, they were prescribing. There were one, strippers too, yes. One of the executives who was convicted used to be an exotic dancer Got and it. was alleged and now I guess found to have given a doctor a lap dance at some kind of company party. Someone threw their phone off the side of a mountain. There was a lot of that going evidence. on. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, if any of this has piqued um, our, our listeners' interest, we have a lot of coverage of the whole trial, but we also have some good sort of post-verdict coverage. Yeah, where a lot of good stuff. Chris has written about it that you mentioned. Also, Aaron Leibowitz has written some about it, including talking to some of the jurors about yeah, how they got yeah. to that verdict. So it's really the interesting. The crack Boston team. Yeah. yeah, Really, really showing out. Um, so that's what's going on with Insys. But we have a good show today as well. Yeah, we're going to have Jody Godoy on to talk about this interesting story where you know uh, uh, the DOJ was sort of uh, deputizing a big law firm and sort of got some pushback from a federal judge so interesting stuff with jody but i think we're going to start off with uh a sort of wackier story out (laughs) yeah um really the brooklyn federal courthouse is wilding out this week um as it sometimes does um there's a trial going on there where the the co-founder of a hedge fund called platinum partners uh is on trial for securities fraud and during a break in the action last week he basically exploded uh, and confronted uh, a. He, he he combusted actually. <laughs> yeah, you realize I stopped my sentence at an yeah, odd yeah. point. He, he 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 blew up at this prosecutor who was questioning a witness prior, um, and the whole the outburst basically landed him in jail this week. Uh, and the judge um, had some really like incredibly harsh comments. Um, this is obviously like inappropriate behavior, but it was so inappropriate that um, got quite a rise out of the judge. I mean, you hear of this kind of stuff if you're watching. You know, an old episode of L.A. Law or something. It doesn't. You don't really think these kind of outbursts happen in court. But give us the rundown. What exactly led to this explosive thing? Yeah. Um, so the guy who is on trial uh, is the platinum founder. His name is Mark Nordlicht, and he, like I said, he's on trial for basically defrauding investors of this energy company that's within his hedge funds portfolio. Um, and they were on a recess last Thursday, and Nordlicht and his wife passed by a government prosecutor in the hallway. And at that point, Nordlicht began, uh, he confronted uh, this woman. Her name is Lauren Elbert, the prosecutor. He basically confronted at her and told, yelled at her, you have no f***ing morals. <laughs> she, had just wow. been, she had just been questioning a witness who was an investor in the company that's uh, under scrutiny here. Um, the government frames the, the, the incident as uh, Nordlicht having lunged at the prosecutor. Mm. Um, his lawyers uh, 
dispute whether whether a lunging happened. We'll talk about that in a second. But it was aggressive enough that his wife, who was next to him, had to sort of intervene and re- restrain him. I, for one, am shocked that a man who chose to name his hedge fund Platinum Partners, Platinum Partners. is, uh, you know, not not all above board. Uh, yeah, I mean, the whole incident um, was, of course, documented on the surveillance system at the courthouse. And um, when it when it uh, there was a quite a colorful exchange that happened once it got uh, brought to the judge. I mean, I'm sure the judge was really mad, right? Yeah. I mean, nobody, no judge would be happy if something like that going on in his or her courtroom. No. Um, but uh the, the the judge is uh, Brian Cogan. Cogan, maybe? Uh, Brian Cogan, uh, I think is what it is. Um, he said that he had noticed Nordlicht, this is a quote, fulminating with rage at several points during the court session. So I don't know. I'm not in there. Uh, Stuart Bishop was, was on the case. Um, apparently he noticed him becoming agitated yeah. throughout the course of the thing. Yeah. So it's something like maybe he saw it coming. Um, and after reviewing the tape, I mean, he said that he, on on the question of lunging, he said that he uh, that Nordlicht had approached the prosecutor in a a very aggressive, very physical way. This was a quote as he was going over. He said, "He meant her no good. I can tell you that. Do I think he would hit her? Probably not. But I do think he meant to intimidate her." Well, it's a situation where you know we're sort of giggling here because it's this white collar yeah. situation, but. You know, if it was the mob or it was drug dealers or it was some more serious criminal situation, boy, you... And also, I mean, <laughs> not to make this like a gendered thing, but it's a guy oh, coming a at a woman, so there's already totally, some physical fair. imbalance there, presumably. Without a doubt. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole thing was serious enough that he got uh, he got put in jail. He was out on, on, a, on, a, on bail from his initial sort of offense. They revoked the bail. They threw him back in jail yep. on Monday. And Bill, you are correct to invoke... Uh, the sort of, you know, very sort of serious, uh, you know, criminal characters who pass mm-hmm. through this court. Um, the judge, uh, uh, Kogan, was that, that, was, that was not lost on him. Uh, he sort of put Nordlich's behavior up against these other uh, characters. And the, the quote is this. I've had cases with mafia hitmen, Mexican sicarios, and terrorists who try to blow up buildings. I've never had any of them act this way. <laughs> wow. Lunging at prosecutors <laughs> and other things. Um, so... You know, it was an interesting episode. Um, Nordlich's lawyer um, is a guy named Jose Baez, who is something of a C or D list celebrity attorney. He represented uh, Casey Anthony and Aaron Hernandez. Oh. Mm-hmm. And now he's on this case. Um, you know, he said he, of course, urged the judge to go easy on his client. He said um, he wasn't defending the way he a- approached the prosecutor. But, quote, we're all human here. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's of course what he had to say. Yeah. Um, did the judge back down from any of the So eventually, here? yes. So that was on Monday. Through, he, he put him in jail on Monday. Um, Baez and the other uh, attorneys sort of made their arguments and the government was like, this is a very serious thing. Uh, a day after, on Tuesday, you know, the, the, the judge, I don't know, he slept on, he's singing a little bit of a different tune. And he basically said... That this was almost certainly a crime. We're already we're, we're prosecuting one crime here, um, and I I've come up with terms of release that I think would deter him from doing it again. He basically entered into a there was an understanding among the attorneys that he would he would be uh, that Nordlich would be accompanied by his counsel at all times throughout like, right. whether he's in the courtroom or in, or on the grounds or whatever, and they would uh, allocate um, some more security, uh, for the proceedings. Uh, he, he told, uh, the, the judge told Nordlicht, he said, I'm telling you, Mr. Nordlicht, there's zero tolerance at this point. So, um, and, uh, the case is pretty interesting on its merits. Stewart, um, is obviously in, is steeped in this world, has very interesting, 
um, ramifications for securities fraud and all that, which we may get into at a later time. But um, stakes are high, and you're beginning to see that in the behavior of the defendant. Our second story isn't anywhere near as as wild and crazy as that one. It doesn't involve any shouting in hallways or... But probably more important in the big scheme of things. One would argue, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Diversity in the law is like a pretty big problem. It's been... That that has been dissected and discussed. Um, Here and elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But one angle I think that isn't talked about as much is... uh, Federal clerkships, yeah. uh, federal and state clerkships. Um, and clerkships are really important to, um, you know, being a path to get on to lead to other things. Right. So. They're both important in the career ladder of individuals, but they're also really important in the functioning of the courthouse. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, so uh, our, our own reporter, Brandon Lowry, wrote a really great story this week. It turns out things are not great diversity-wise, in the, the ranks of the clerkship. I'd okay. love to pretend to be surprised by that, but I feel like every time we do one of these stories, it's at least pointing out the problem so yeah. that people can try to address it once they know what's going on. So, so he had a great he had a great lead in where it was it was uh, take take any five uh, clerks and the the overwhelming likelihood is that four of them will be white. Yeah. Um, and so but now there's a justice on the California Supreme Court who's pushing for a study to figure out why that is and how it might maybe be addressed. Well, can you give us a lay in the land of what we do know? Yeah, so Brandon cited this study from 2017 that was it was focused on um, uh, Asian Americans in the law, but it had some interesting findings on this front. Uh, the the key one is that um, while white students have accounted for 58 percent of graduates from like the top tier law schools over re- in recent years, um, they're selected for 80 percent of the federal clerkships. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, over the last two decades, the number of people of color selected for those same jobs um, have has remained pretty stagnant. Um, so what sort of Brandon hung his story on is that there's this justice uh, on the California Supreme Court mm-hmm. named Goodwin Liu, who is launching a study to figure out why you know what is what is happening here it's it's in conjunction with um the university of california berkeley the american bar foundation and northwestern university mm-hmm. um you know his the real point is that like we have a good idea that like we have a good idea of the rough problem but you have a sense that something might be amiss yeah but there's no underlying data to figure out to, to have any sort of scientific idea of like wh- where it's occurring why it's occurring and you can't fix it unless you really know the contours of where things are going wrong totally and so um what's interesting is they sort of so they they have this sense that like that judges are generally receptive to the idea of of diversity initiatives yeah. that you know okay. judges want to hire more diverse clerks they that is a thing that judges want but yeah. there's clearly a bottleneck at some point because like i said it's 80% white right now yeah. so the idea is to figure out use some of that data that they might be able to 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 find and figure out where that bottleneck is. So what are the proposed um, ideas about where it could be going wrong? Like where's the bottleneck happening? Yeah. So they're going to they're going to look at three sort of specific areas that they think are critical. The one is the the lawyers, the the young law students themselves, why they are making the decisions that they make in terms of going to to apply for jobs to mm-hmm. you know, look in that direction. Um, the pipeline that that sort of exists in law schools between professors and everything like that sort of moving people toward these clerkships yeah and then the actual hiring processes of the judges who who hire clerks yeah there's an interesting stuff going on and we were talking about this at the production meeting yesterday and you alluded to it and i thought we could go a little deeper just the um 
for the for the non-legal you know professionals in the audience the role that the clerks play is like really interesting in yeah. terms of just like yes it's obviously very easy to say oh yes there should be more attorneys of color and of different genders um and more judges uh, the, the you know the, the the bench should be more diverse but the clerks like op like occupy a very interesting role in the judicial system yeah i mean it's it's you know it's it's easy to say that there should be more women or more people of color litigating cases or that you know that we're going to have these hard policies in place but clerks obviously in terms of some judges they probably they probably write a lot of the opinions and you know it's a it's a it's a really really important role in just the practical functionality of the court system. Yeah, and then I I always think about it as the next step too that we've also alluded to in this conversation where not only is it important for the court system but getting one of those clerkships early in your career really makes a world of difference about what you do next. I yeah. mean it could put you on the path to being a judge one day. Yeah. It could put you on the path to being a top litigator at a big firm. So if a diverse group of people aren't getting that first opportunity, it changes everything all the way up the scale. Right. So what's interesting about this about Brandon's story is that they sort of he sort of gets into you know they have hypotheses for why yeah. for for the various problems that they want to then look into in each of those areas. So mm-hmm. when it comes to the the students themselves, you know it's a it's a thing you see a lot in when you when you're talking about diversity that um, lower income people people who um, uh, there's an issue of um, you know that that if you're going. If you're graduating from law school and there's the opportunity to go work a fairly low-paying clerkship job that could ultimately be super lucrative long term, but you have six-figure debt and you need to start working right away, mm-hmm. that's an immediate disincentive yeah. to yeah. go take that job. There's it's a certain s- type of person who can afford to take that hit completely right out of law school. Well, it's a thing. I mean, not to navel gaze, but it's a thing we see in media too, not where it's these really high, mm-hmm. prestigious uh, uh, sure. internships at magazines and things like that. That yeah, where you're yeah, like, yeah. oh, well, a lot of people can't afford to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is. I mean, I harken back to my law school days, and I briefly was like, oh, I'd really like to work on the Hill after law school. There's lots right. of jobs for lawyers, and then I, then I saw what the salaries were, and I was like. Yeah, I can't do that. Right, I'm I need like not do that. I need like a ceiling and the occasional meal. Yeah, um, uh-huh. those are important things. <laughs> be good. So the other, the other, the next thing is the the idea of of in law schools that there's professors and school administrators who have these connections with yeah. with existing with judges and existing clerks that to sort of funnel people through. And the the rough ideas, the rough guess is that you know people. Um, People of color don't have the wouldn't have the the immediate connection that those that that pipeline is is heavily like mm-hmm. dominated by white professors and it it sort of cordons off people. There isn't that level of mentorship and yeah, and we talk about that in the firm context too sure. in terms yeah, yeah. of uh, you know people making partner and taking people under their wings exactly and, that mm-hmm. that that pipeline is maybe cut off to some people. Yeah, um, and then finally the third thing that they're going to look at is like I said the hiring processes of these yeah. judges because. <laughs> It's easy to speak in generalities and say that that judges are interested in diversity, but until you have data to back up that they're doing this, they're implementing it this way, they're actually right. checking to see if it's doing anything. Yeah. It doesn't really matter whether or not they're 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 sort of generally interested in this. Yeah. So, um, it's a academic study. It's going to take a while to really get some results, but it's definitely an interesting um, aspect of the bigger picture of looking at diversity in the law, and and it'll be a thing that we'll we'll want to watch going forward.
Last week, a Manhattan federal judge said she was deeply troubled to learn that federal prosecutors had effectively outsourced a criminal investigation to Paul Weiss, a prestigious big law firm. The judge said such behavior could have triggered a Fifth Amendment violation, raising tricky questions about how federal law enforcement investigates white-collar crime. Here to discuss the whole situation is our white-collar crime whiz, Jody Godoy. Welcome back to the show. Hey, guys. Hey, Jody. Many-time guest. Yes. Um, Great to be back. So before we get into the specifics of the case, we thought a good place to sort of set the table would be, could you sort of explain for the listeners how, like, why DOJ works how they work with companies and why they sort of see that as an important aspect of how they investigate white collar crime? Yeah, I mean, so you think of a typical investigation, just, you know, you're in your mind, you think FBI agents knocking on doors, interviewing witnesses, stuff like that. Works a little different with companies, right? The DOJ gives a lot of incentives for corporations to cooperate in the DOJ's investigation. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't just mean, you know, answering questions and sitting down for interviews, that means on the company side, doing a lot of stuff like gathering data, gathering up documents, talking to their own people first with their in-house lawyers, right. mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And it saves the DOJ a lot of time and a lot of money. Yeah. And I'm sure it uncovers things that the, the DOJ, if they just went with sort of like an outsider blunt force approach, they wouldn't get, that the company can maybe find more information internally than the DOJ would be able to. Right. That's one point. And, and the company can do a lot of things that the DOJ actually has a hard time doing. For example, getting access to overseas witnesses. There's all kinds of red tape there that the Mm -hmm. DOJ would run into. The company can just say, well, hey, you know, you're an employee. Can you help us out here? And in fact, you know, a lot of companies make it a condition of employment that you cooperate in these types of things. Yeah, right. And they can more easily navigate the corporate maze or whatever the case may be. So sort of understanding how that dynamic works within the DOJ and how they do this stuff. Let's talk about uh, the sort of the instant case here with Deutsche Bank and Paul Weiss. Walk us through exactly what happened. Right. So what happened was Deutsche Bank was one of the banks that was under investigation a few years ago for rigging this benchmark called LIBOR, which we will not LIBOR, get into. Yeah. 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 Uh, Jody, could you do about a 26-minute <laughs> yeah, breakdown right. of the we'll LIBOR just, we'll scandal? All it, day, yeah. it had you been know, a minute since I wrote a LIBOR story and uh, not not one minute sooner. <laughs> right. Anyway, yeah. So, I mean, that that being said, the, the bank, it was, a, it was a big deal for the bank. So they hired, they went out and did what any bank or corporation would do and went out and hired some big guns from big law. In this case, it was Paul Weiss. Mm-hmm. So the bank had Paul Weiss interview, you know, hundreds of employees, yeah. go through trading data, go through documents. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the lawyers at Paul Weiss were in constant communication with the DOJ and in meetings where prosecutors were kind of giving orders to the lawyers as to what they wanted to see. All right. So you've laid out sort of the the government's involvement in this nominally internal investigation. We're having you on because this week a Manhattan judge called that arrangement uh, was a deep she was deeply troubled by that arrangement. Why? Right. So this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, how companies have leverage that the government doesn't exactly have, right? Mm-hmm. So in this case, you had a trader who was charged based on the evidence that the bank through its lawyers had handed over to the government, right? Mm-hmm. And then you had him saying, well, look, if the government didn't do its own investigation, if it basically outsourced that investigation to the bank and the bank made me sit down for those interviews with its lawyers or else be fired, you know, basically you have the bank acting as an arm of the government and you have a Fifth Amendment violation because he was compelled to testify against himself, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the government has wide investigative powers, but it doesn't have the power to fire you from your job. Only your employer has that power. Right, and that sort usually. of gets at what we're what we're talking about right. here. Yeah. 
I mean, exactly. I mean, the thing that the judge found so troubling about this investigation and this arrangement is exactly the same thing that the DOJ finds, you know, helpful in certain ways right. about, about having companies do these investigations mm-hmm. and then hand stuff over. You know, like I said before, companies can get through certain red tape. They can do things, you know, that the DOJ can't or can do it more cheaply, um, at least from the government's perspective. And, you know, the judge was like, well, if you're going to do that, you've essentially pinned a ban- And you're, if you're going to do that and not also have your own robust investigation on the government side, yeah. you've essentially pinned a badge on this company. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of, like when you see this story, there's all sorts of things that you think of that are like maybe problematic about deputizing a private law firm, a private company in terms of a criminal investigation. I mean, you're not deputizing them. They haven't sworn any kind of oath to uphold (laughs) anything. So yeah, you are, you are de facto deputizing. They're they're lawyers. They're acting ethically. And the judge didn't have any qualms with how the lawyers acted in this case. Yeah. 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 Um, But it, no, but it's just so interesting to, to view it through the lens of this specific fifth amendment argument that this is, you know, that, that you're comp- you, you're compelling uh, uh, testimony from this person with the threat of of them being fired by the private company. You can see, especially right. in the financial sector, why you know the the, the government wouldn't want uh, companies to just police themselves. Uh, you know that that we've the, the country has gotten in a lot of trouble because of that. But you know you're the federal government; you have power to investigate. You can just investigate them. I can see why this arrangement, where you kind of do a middle road, is like. I, the government, am investigating you as you police yourself, and I am in the shadows. I'm kind of, I'm paraphrasing, but you can see how this would make it, some people yeah, it raises it raises so many questions, and especially when you get to this phase where you're actually because the DOJ, you know, uh, has said it doesn't just want to find banks or find corporations; it wants to hold individuals accountable by charging them with crimes. So right. when you get to the point where you're charging individuals with crimes, you see these questions arise. Well, and it's it's in a bigger picture sense, you know, that the, that was a thing that was much discussed in the wake of the financial crisis, that individuals yeah. were not charged with crimes. And this is this is the government right. attempting so, to do so. Right. And yeah, but it's relying on corporations to identify right. who are the resp- you know, the um, substantially involved individuals who should be prosecuted. Right. So, yeah. you have defense lawyers for these individuals making all kinds of novel arguments and making the, what could be turned into problems for prosecutors, right? Well, that's a good, I think that's a great yeah. place for us to pivot to talking about, like, you know, what does this mean going forward? I think, I mean, I know the judge said here that this, you know, it didn't come into play here, but that it could have pretty easily been a Fifth Amendment violation. Right. The reason that it didn't make an impact and that this conviction still stands based on this ruling, is that the judge found that the compelled testimony from these interviews wasn't actually used to get the indictment right. or to secure his conviction. Yeah. Had that been different, this could have gone very differently. So does the DOJ need to, you know, do they need to take lessons from this? Does this, do they need to change the way that they operate? I mean, do they, are they not going to be able to do this, these, you know, this level of cooperation the way that they, I think you pretty ably laid out, they, they really like to do? I think that is something that everyone has eyes on right now. In fact, just yesterday, there were some DOJ officials speaking at an event, and one of them was like, you know, we don't direct investigations. However, <laughs> what we do do... This thing that this really important court just admonished us for, we yeah. definitely don't I do mean, that. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't <laughs> I know, I talk know. directly about yes, the, yes. the ruling, but he said, you know, we don't direct investigations, but what we do do is give lists of all the documents and data and things that we want to a company, and then they can produce those to us. The theory there being, (laughs) you know, if we just uh, (laughs) subpoenaed them, they would give those to us. But if they're cooperating, they can give them to to us of our own accord. But then that raises a question, you know, is that directing Mm. an internal investigation, if the company wasn't inclined to ferret out those documents of its own accord, you're kind of giving them 
directions? Mm-hmm. It's such a complicated question for like yeah. the a thing that you know. Pe- <laughs> You know the, the the policy end goal seems pretty. It seems like no one would have any qualms with, but the the uh, the the issues that it raises, the tricky questions that it raises, um, it'll be interesting to see if they can come up with any sort of bright bright line rules for what what constitutes directing the gov- directing a private company. Right. I think part of that's going to depend on how many more defendants are successful in getting judges to go this far right. and to like you know, let them dig into the DOJ emails and documents and calls that were in this case showing communication with Paul Weiss lawyers. You know, it's an open question. This is the second judge, to, at least that I know of, to take this argument quite seriously. So mm-hmm. there may be more. She's the chief judge in Manhattan. So yeah, yeah we'll or see. maybe some uh, some some appellate court rulings might might, you know, clear things up a bit. Oh, this case is going to the appeals court for sure. Well, that seems like a good forward-looking place to uh, wrap it up. Jody, always interesting, always good to have you. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, guys. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and guys... um, I want to talk about some competition that's heading our way in terms of trial coverage. New content is on Uh-oh. the horizon. It is. Um, do you remember the cable channel Court TV? I have I have vague recollections. I have like hazy memories of Court TV, mostly from the OJ trial. Well, it's coming back. You're going to know a lot more about it because okay. Court TV has relaunched just this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to remind you guys what it was, you're right. It was. It covered the OJ trial. It was on all the time. I was like nine or ten years old when that was going on, and I just remember being, like, whatever. The 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 trial is on all day, and then they yep. immediately have like hours upon hours of analysis. Yes, yeah, it was a sign, 100%. Of, sign of things to come. And that's when I, yeah, it, that that planted the seed for a healthy skepticism <laughs> of cable news that 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 continues on to this day in my bones. So, like you said, it was a TV channel that was devoted just to courtroom proceedings yeah. and then analysis of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it launched in 1991, so right in time for some some big things that we probably all remember, and it featured literally just gavel to gavel. I mean, it just yeah. covered the day in court. Um, it did cover the O.J. Simpson trial that you mentioned. Yeah. Also, the trial of Jeffrey Dahmer, mm. um, oh. the Menendez brothers. The so Menendez anything brothers, we sure. sort of remember from the mid-90s as a cultural moment where people were talking about it a lot, they were there. Um, yeah. And that may be part of why we do remember them so vividly, because otherwise we wouldn't have been watching those moments in court. And it turns out... So wait, that when when did this shutter? This is like in the '90s or something. Yeah, uh, turns out people are still getting sued. <laughs> it turns out they court are. proceedings still happening. So, they should launch some sort of podcast to talk about. <laughs> so yeah, all of this stuff was really in that '90s zeitgeist. Yeah, and people were really into it. But you know, taste change in media and what mm-hmm. people want to follow. So Time Warner had actually bought the channel in 2006, and oh, okay. by 2008. They had rebranded it to the channel that still exists called True TV. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Yeah. And True TV hosts a lot of reality shows. Yeah. So wait, wait. But it, so, so is is True TV turning back into no, Court TV? No, True TV saying its own thing. Court oh, TV is coming back. Oh, I see. But you can kind of see like the. I mean, I love TV. You guys know that. So you, you kind of see the winds of what's popular and when uh, in this story where. 
everybody was really into the true crime stuff. They got into the court things. It was really popular. Yes, yeah. But then reality shows I know. came on the scene mm-hmm. and they sort of dominated and it changed what people were watching. So that's how it became true TV. Yeah. But now people are like, what if we turned the legal system into a reality <laughs> show? It's kind of what it's well, like. Well, you know. You, well, you could see, my brain yes, just blew yes. up. You well, you can see how it's joke, like cheap but, programming. Well, but also like there is just sort of the winds of like what people are into right now. Yeah. Like, the podcast Serial was yeah. so popular that got on people's radar. Yep. Um, making a Murderer that Netflix yeah. had. Like people really mm-hmm. are back into true crime. And even things like that dramatization, uh, a couple different shows did it, of the O.J. Simpson saga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it comes back around. Uncle Juice. True TV must have seen that O.J. Simpson stuff and been like... <sighs> We were, uh, I'm sorry, Court TV must have yeah. seen that OG Simpson stuff and been like, we were there first. We could have totally it, had yeah. that. Is it, do you know if it's going to be, is it an actual like over the air cable channel or is it like a streaming service? It's going to be an over the air cable channel. Oh, okay. It's not going to be covered. I mean, it depends on your cable package, of course. Sure. What areas get it back? Look um, in your local listings. <laughs> yeah, look in those listings. <laughs> okay. But here's what to expect if you do get it in your, yeah, in give, your us the, lineup. give us the elevator pitch. They're going back to the basics. They're going to air trials pretty much start to finish most of the day. And then they're going to have these evening programs. Programs, kind of like what you talked about, Alex, where they dissect what's happened in big cases at the end of, of the day. Sort of budding Nancy um, Graces of the world. That's right. So here's one to look forward to. They've already said they plan to cover the Harvey Weinstein sexual assault trial in New huh. York later this year. Okay. So we can all watch that'll that. Be a, that'll be a light, fun romp. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, if you think that one's bad, here's the first one they're starting with. They're going to have live coverage inside a court in Georgia, a trial of parents who are charged with murdering their newborn. Uh, well, yeah, it's right. It's, it's heavy. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm generally for like more transparency and maybe even like more, like cameras in like the court proceedings. But like, this is it. It, it is a slippery slope to like turn it into pulp. For, yeah, you know, yeah. that's a whole There's, other thing than just like a transparency never, argument. This they never is very... shied away from heavy stuff. I no, mean, I they were yes, covering serial killers before and yeah. and other murder trials. So expect sort of a revival of that on this channel. Cool. Um, and, you know, <laughs> if you if you are a court junkie, though, there's something really interesting about seeing it unfiltered. It's not just someone talking about what you should know about a case. Right. It really is just the proceedings start to finish. Yeah, I don't see any any market for people wanting to listen to people just talk about what a case was about. All right. <laughs> okay. You need the visuals. That is the sign to cut off this conversation before we get in trouble. Yeah. Um, thanks for being with me today, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Jody Gidoy, and our contributing reporters, Brandon Lowry and Stuart Bishop. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. We'd love it if you subscribe to the show and also leave us a written review. It really does help others find Pro Se. If you want to know more about anything we talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week. <laughs>